Andy, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to probably move at some pace through the material tonight. That's partly because if I slow down, I might fall over, and partly so we've got some time for questions and we'll get done inside the hour. Can I just, uh, we're going to start with a little experiment. I'm going to do the experiment now. We'll come back to it a little bit later. Can I get a person from the end of each table just to come up for a moment? I'm not going to get you to dance or anything. Um, just take that one. You can take that one, that one. Okay, what I'm going to ask you to do okay, is copy that onto one of the little bits of paper on your table and then uh, scrunch up, destroy whatever the one I've just given you. So don't show it to everybody else. Copy it. Co copy it. Okay. Copy it and then destroy it and pass your one onto the next person. They're going to copy it onto another piece of paper and destroy it. Okay, and the idea is, by the, end, by, by the little, end of this little experiment, the person on the end of the table has one left, and all the others have been destroyed, okay? And we'll come back to explain why we're doing that a little bit later, okay? Keep doing that as we go. Let me, um, uh, let me introduce our evening with, with a, a question. Why are we doing what we're doing with big questions? Why are we, uh, why are we wanting to address uh, the questions that maybe you've got, maybe your friends have got, um, what is a, a, I'm going to use the word apologetics. It's simply a way of saying um, entering a dialogue. Okay? What is apologetics? It, it is, uh, from a Christian perspective, apologetics is uh, I'm entering into a conversation with another person. Okay? And we are trying to find some common ground. We're trying to uh, discern who's got the most robust worldview. Okay? And it might be that you're here as a Christian, you're thinking, um, I, I'm pretty confident in my Christian worldview, but I want to be able to engage in a dialogue with my non-Christian friend. I want to persuade them that I'm standing on the truth more than they are. You might be here as somebody who is not yet a Christian, and you might be there quite sceptical, thinking, I'm not convinced that Christianity has any basis at all. And, and perhaps tonight would be helpful for you. Or perhaps you're here as a Christian who has some doubts. You're a persuaded Christian, but you're not entirely convinced that the Bible is reliable, even though that's how we, we treat it. And so tonight is an opportunity uh, to, uh, to strengthen that discussion, that dialogue between two different worldviews. Uh, if you are here as a, a not-yet-Christian, can I say, uh, I'm very, very grateful that you've come along. Uh, so glad you're here. Uh, we believe that the truth matters. I hope you're here as somebody who believes that truth matters. I hope that we're all here as people who want to live according to the way the world really is, and not simply the way... Someone's persuaded us that the world is. We want to live by the truth, whatever that truth is. And so it's really important that we're prepared to examine whatever our worldview is. As a Christian, I believe that uh, Christianity is the most coherent explanation for the way the world is and how we should live in the world. And so I'm really convinced that you can push and probe Christianity from every direction you want to, ask all the questions you want to, and Christianity will be the worldview that stands up to that scrutiny. Okay, uh, so do come along and do, do think and do engage and do ask your questions. Uh, being aware that as we do this, uh, Christianity will pose questions to you as well. Okay, uh, what is it that you're uh, trusting in? What is it that you've based your worldview on? What we're going to do, I think, is this. Uh, I'm going to attempt uh, to, in the first place, pose the question. Okay, get us clear on what the question is that we're addressing this evening. Okay, really important that we get, uh, we, we're, we're as fair with the question that we ask as we can be. You know, pose the question in the most provocative way that we can. Then we're going uh, to go a little bit philosophical. Where does the question come from? Why would we ask that question? Why is it that it's such a common question for us today? Thirdly, and the thing we're going to spend obviously uh, the most time on is, okay, let's break the question, can we trust the Bible, into 
uh, the, compo- the component parts. There's a whole bunch of ways in which people might think the Bible isn't trustworthy. And so we want to come to each of those and say, okay, what's, what's the answer we might give to each of those questions? And then finally, we're going to just ask the question, okay, well, I'll throw a whole bunch of stuff at you tonight, more than you will remember, uh, more than uh, perhaps intimidatingly so. I hope it's not too intimidating. Um, so we want to we want to sort of pan back from uh, from all of the things we're going to look at and say, okay, how would I answer that question? Uh, can we trust the Bible? Uh, why not? Uh, let's let's begin with that question. Why not turn just to the person next to you and ask the answer the question? Can we trust the Bible? How would you answer that question now? Go on, two like, two minutes. Great. Let me let me break in there. I'm, I'm sure there's much more you could say, and, and I guess one of the things I want to say up front is, um, even the little things that I've I've sort of overheard in your conversations. There's lots that you've said that's that's really helpful. One of the things that we want to do with big questions is persuade uh, persuade you guys, at least those of you who regular at church, that actually you, you have lots of the answers already. And all we're going to do is provide something of a framework, fill it out a little bit, give you a few more things. But you're perfectly capable of having these conversations with your, your friends uh, without retreating into your shell. Let's, let's think about just why this is an important question. Okay? It's, it's, in, in some ways, this is the most important question, uh, I think, okay? uh, and why we're doing it first. Okay? Without uh, this, without the gospel from the Bible, without the Bible being true, Christianity is a nonsense. We cannot know that Christian. We cannot know God. We cannot know uh, how to live in His world if God doesn't speak. And so, if the Bible isn't true, if it isn't reliable, then you can throw Christianity out. Whatever we think we've built on the Bible, you can throw it away. And so, it's a really fundamental question, isn't it? Uh, perhaps we can think about the question: um, uh, Why might uh, somebody who's not yet a Christian uh, think the Bible is a nonsense? I guess you could say that there's the question of historical distance. We're so far away and, so, and such a culture apart from it. How can we possibly believe that, that the, the Bible hasn't evolved over time away from what was originally written? Perhaps uh, regarding the contents of Scripture, I don't know what you would, what you would say. The things that I've heard uh, most often are uh, miracles. We're, we're scientific people. We're, we're 21st century people. We don't believe in people raising the dead and walking on water and so on. That seems to be a historical nonsense. Uh, the morals of the Bible, 
Uh, how, you know, isn't the Bible anti-gay? Isn't it uh, anti-women? Isn't it pro-slavery? Isn't it just so confused about morals? You know, things that seem so amoral to us or immoral to us are seem seemingly uh, imposed by Scripture. And these things seem to, uh, to make the Bible so nonsensical to people that they, they won't look at it. These things we've got to address. For the Christian, I think the pressure goes the other way. Uh, because... Uh, through the Bible, we know Jesus. Through Jesus, we know God. Uh, we understand the world that we live in. We understand how to live in the world. The whole edifice of our faith is built on this one question. Okay. Uh, the content of Christianity is determined by uh, what the Bible says. And so everything is lost if uh, the Bible isn't true. Okay. Without it, we don't know God. So this is uh, the vital question to begin with. All the rest of our big questions over the next few months uh, will be using the Bible to answer those questions. And so if this isn't true, then we have no answers. Okay, uh, let's, um, let's move on then to the question behind the question. Why is it that we've come to the point where we're asking these questions? Why is it that people are suspicious of, uh, of old texts? Why is it that people are suspicious of miracles and of the Bible's morals? Uh, let me, again, do a little bit of the work that we're going to, uh, is going to help us to answer big questions in the weeks to come. Uh, with this word, worldview, you might have come across worldview, I think probably Andy and I have used it uh, as we've taught from the, the, the front of church. What do we mean by worldview? Worldview is like uh, my glasses. They are um, the thing through which I look that help me to see the world. It is the, the substructure of our minds that helps us to interpret all the things around us. It's the thing that helps us to make daily decisions. It's the thing that makes us, helps us to, to live in the world. And, and the, sort of, the most fundamental uh, superstructure of our worldview is made up of a series of questions. Let me uh, present them to you. The first question, undoubtedly, is does God exist? Uh, everybody is a theologian. Everybody has an answer to that question, one way or the other, even small children. Everybody has a theological position. And this is the most important question, because it determines the track you go down with your thinking. But of course, it's not the only uh, part of that question. If God exists, uh, what is he, she, it like? Uh, are there many gods? Is it Zeus or Allah? Is it a plurality of gods or a single god? Those are big questions that determine a huge amount about our worldview. Uh, from that we then have another big question. What is the story? What is the narrative? What's the arc? Where do we, where do we come from? And where are we going? How do we know? What is life all about? What's the purpose of all things? How has the world gone wrong? We have to have an explanation for the fact that there is death and murder and crime. Why is it so grim and yet so beautiful in the world? What's the explanation in all worldviews? presents an answer to that question and it's within that uh, framework that we then ask the question what is the purpose of life why am i here how should i direct myself in this world um, and within that then you have this question okay who am i what am i doing here where am i going what's the purpose of life why should i do this thing and not that thing uh, worldview is the thing that shapes how we answer that question Okay, the God question, uh, the big story question, those are the things that determine our uh, worldview. In order to, to then ask where does, where does the, the dominant worldview of our age come from, uh, let me give you a very brief history of Western thought, uh, if I can do. Uh, we'll break history into four parts. First part, pre-modern. 
uh, up to the mid-17th century, everybody in, in Western Europe believed that God existed, broadly speaking, God existed and God spoke. And so the Bible was revered. And if you were living in uh, Arabia, uh, the Quran was revered. Uh, everybody understood that. To really understand the world, God had to speak. And then this chap came along, uh, René Descartes. He was uh, interacting with people who were sceptical about the existence of God, and he wanted to argue that you could know the existence of God from pure rational thought. And so he, he came up with this dictum. You'll know it very well. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. And what, what Descartes did was uh, put aside the Bible or, or scriptural text, all authoritative texts, and said, the only thing you can know for certain is that I am. Because I think, therefore, I must be. And from there, he tried to argue for, uh, for the existence of various things, including God's. But notice that the, the, the truth went from God who speaks to me who thinks. Okay? Uh, the, next, uh, the next chap, Immanuel Kant, this is some time later, 150 years later, Kant comes along and he says, well, the thing about what uh, Descartes has said is uh, there's only a limited number of things that we can know for sure. He said, things that you can do scientifically, things that you can work out rationally, those things you can know. Anything that you can take in through the senses, you can know. Everything else is out the window, which means that um, we have no knowledge of metaphysics, which is to say no knowledge of things beyond the physical world, because you can't see God, you can't taste God, you can't touch God, so God cannot be known. And so uh, we don't know how to live properly, really. All you've got is the way that you see the world. And you see how that begins to filter into uh, all the ways that we uh, think today. Now, at this point, it's really helpful to notice that uh, we're not uh, blank slates when it comes to discussing worldview. It's a lovely quote I'm just going to show you from uh, Aldous Huxley, the novelist and essayist. He said, I had motives for not wanting to have a meaning. It's a big worldview question. I wanted there to be no meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able, without any difficulty, find satisfying reasons for this assumption. He begins with the idea that I don't want there to be a God because I don't want to be a purpose. I don't want to be meaning. And I, I found reasons to disbelieve in God. Of course, if you grow up in a world where Kant is king, that's fine, isn't it? Because it's all about what I can work out and discern rationally. And so the, the universe becomes a cold, heartless, meaningless place, to paraphrase Nietzsche. Uh, but at least you don't have God judging you and deciding your eternal fate. And so we reach... The contemporary age, uh, post-modernity. Post-modernity is really the logical consequence of Descartes' thoughts. Uh, Kant held that uh, by reason and scientific endeavour, you can know an awful lot about the universe. He was a hyper-rational man. Uh, the postmodern person comes along and says, how can you trust your eyes, really? How can you trust your ears? And how can you trust your mind? I mean, your eyes are really just sending electrical messages to your brain. How, how can you be sure that your brain is wired to work out anything properly? And so the, 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 uh, the postmodern comes along and says, do you know, you have to be sceptical about knowing anything at all. Uh, sceptical about knowing yourself, sceptical about actually anything you think you've seen, uh, certainly sceptical about the existence of God. You have to be sceptical of everything. And the logical consequence of this is that we are deeply suspicious as a generation of narrative, of the, the story arc. Because, of course, if I come along and say, there is a story, there's a purpose, God has made the world, it's going to this point, and we fit in here, you go, how do you know? You can't possibly know, because we're sceptical about everything. And so the postmoderns say, the only, the only reason for having 
any, my, my attempt to tell you worldview is merely an attempt to control you. And so uh, for the postmodern, everything is a power play. Every, every use of language is me trying to control you for financial gain or power because we cannot know anything. And isn't that the way we are as a culture? We've reached a point in Western intellectual history where we no longer discuss truth. We discuss my truth or your truth. And we've reached a point where uh, we, we cannot assert anything against another. I have to, to allow you the free reign to think what you want and live as you want because there is no truth. We cannot know a thing. And that's what we've come to. Apologies if that is uh, too quick or those names are scary. You don't have to know those things. Uh, but I hope it's a useful background. And the reason I wanted to raise it is because if you've been educated in the Western University in the last 40 years, your university will have been shaped by that thinking. Uh, if you've grown up in an education system anywhere in the West, you would have been taught to be uh, suspicious of texts, suspicious of uh, people making power plays, suspicious of narratives. Texts are there for you to read in whatever you want to see. Uh, same, same with the Bible as it is for every other text. You cannot know anything truly. Of course, postmodernity doesn't work, does it? First of all, it doesn't work because... Sorry, let me put these up. Okay. Post-modernity doesn't work. It doesn't work because uh, it relies on this absolute statement. All absolute statements are wrong. Which you can see instantly is self-refuting, isn't it? Uh, because somebody somewhere has said, there's this absolute statement that does work. It is that all absolute statements are wrong. Well, why, why would you trust that person? Why would you trust Michel Foucault or Jacques Derrida... And they're French, apart from anything else. Sorry, that was uh, unhelpful. Um, why would you trust them and their absolute statement over anybody else's? But the second reason you can't trust postmodernism is because we don't live like that, do we? If I walk past your house and your house is on fire and I say, your house is on fire, you'll go, of course you'll say, well, that's your truth, Ash. My truth is the house is fine. I'm going back to bed. Thank you very much. That's not how we work, is it? You get out. You, you phone the fire brigade because we understand that language has a meaning, that people, we deal in truth all the time. A little truth and big truth. Postmodernity doesn't work. But it does beg us, please, to examine our own worldviews as we're doing this evening. We're putting the Bible under the microscope and saying, can we really trust it? And that's a good thing to do. But let me say in advance, please don't be postmodern about it. Please don't assume, before you've looked at the evidence, that uh, all texts must be dismissed as a matter of course. That would simply be taking the teachings of some French dudes and making them absolute over other possible truths. So can we make a positive case for the Bible then? Can we trust the Bible? Which really uh, can be broken down into three big sub-questions, can't it? Can we trust the authors of the Bible? That is, uh, can we trust their intent? Did they intend to write authoritative texts? Did they intend for us to live in light of their texts? And if they did, did they have the ability to do that? Did they pull it off? Did they write a text that is actually truthful? And even if they did, did have we received that document? It's 2,000 years, we're a language at least away from it. Have we received what was written? Did they have the ability and the intention to write truth? Have we received it? And even if they were able, and even if we have those documents, isn't it a circular argument 
isn't it a circular argument to say, we believe the Bible is authoritative because the Bible says so? That's a bit of a weird argument, isn't it? Now, shouldn't we rely on somebody else's authority to tell us so? Those three questions I want to address in the next few minutes. And the first thing we're going to do is look at reception. Uh, just quickly, any questions at this point? Uh, feel free to save them till the end. Um, I will hang around for as long as people have questions at the end. So, so have exactly. So, have we received what was written? So, by reception, I mean uh, we've got it. You know, we've got our uh, NIV 2011 edition downstairs. Is that the same thing as was written in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew all those centuries ago? Have we received what was written? Thank you, Nush, for that question. And I think the answer to this one is pretty easy, to be honest with you. And in fact, I, I want to say that the further we are away from the original texts, the more reliable our Bibles become. I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. Uh, but the more, the, the more accurate uh, translation becomes because of the further we are away historically from those texts. Uh, at the beginning, I, I sent around um, that bit of paper. Can you just bring me up the, the, the four pieces of paper that you have left? Is that the... Is that the, the no, so the, the last one. So the, the last one that was written. Is that the last one? Great. Okay. Great. Okay. Good, good, good. When you're ready, Claire. It's all right. Okay. Yeah. You, you, you guys got the hard one, didn't you? That's great. Good. So uh, let me... What, what have I done here? Look. The Bible gets written, okay, and it gets copied and copied and copied, and it goes through various... various uh, Translation. So over here, you might have uh, the Syriac. Okay, over here, you might have the Aramaic. Over here, you've got the Greek. Over here, you've got some Hebrew. Over here, maybe you've got the Coptic translations. Okay, and then over time, everything up here is lost. Okay, it's a family tree, a history of texts. Okay, and over time, you lose all of the original texts. Okay. How, how can you be sure you've got that one? How can you be sure that you've, reconst you've got enough data to reconstruct that? And our little, our little game, hopefully, gets us some way towards answering that question because um, each of these bits of paper is at least five generations from the original text. Okay, and you've all destroyed all the other ones. We've we basically destroyed all these, and we've got what's left. Okay, and we're going to see if we can... If we can uh, okay, so this one is... The Syriac. See if I can copy it from my, my one. Make sure I get it right. Okay. See how close you girls were. Okay. I'm going to copy what you've written. Okay. Now I'm not quite sure what that actually says because that's not quite what I wrote down. But in, to be fair to you, <laughs> it was by far the hardest thing um, I asked anybody to do. Okay, and then we've got over here, we've got the Coptic. Okay, I'm going to write down what, they, what they've given us. Okay, I've actually not given myself enough space for that. Okay, that's the, that's the Coptic. Then we've got uh, the Hebrew here. Let me get this right. Uh, yeah. Okay, Sefer. Okay, and... 
Okay. Okay. Now, what do these what do these things all have in common? What do those words all have in common? Anybody like this? Yeah. Okay. So, biblion is a scroll or book. Uh, which is the Greek word we use for Bible. Sefer, the Hebrew word for book or scroll. I don't know how to pronounce these two. Um, they're related languages to, to the Hebrew, uh, but that's the Coptic and the Syriac, which were both really early languages that the Bible was translated, and they all mean the same thing. I used online resources to get those two because I don't speak Syriac or Coptic. Um, but um, you, could, you, know, you, start, you, you have to work out which is the original language for this text. But pretty well, if you found a bit of Bible in Syriac and another one in Greek, and another one in Hebrew, and another one in Coptic, and they all said basically the same thing in their own languages. You'd be pretty sure that whatever bit of the Bible you were translating, that word meant book, couldn't you? Okay, well now, that is basically what we do with um, the, whole, the whole gamut of biblical texts. Okay, this is what we call um, uh, uh, text criticism. It's basically taking all of the texts that, w- that exist and saying, can we trace them in their family trees? Can we find out what the original text meant by looking at all the bits and putting them together and saying, what must the original text have been? There's a huge science behind it. It's very exciting. Um, I think so. I'll tell you how exciting it was. I was up at a place called Tyndale House in Cambridge on Friday uh, visiting an old friend of mine who is up there doing uh, Old Testament studies, PhD at Cambridge. Okay? Tyndale House is like the, the world's leading centre for New Testament uh, and Old Testament studies. Okay? And uh, we're just standing in the hallway, and this guy walks past. I said, like, like, full black dress, massive Gandalfy beard. I mean, really long beard. <laughs> and he's like, so that's, that's, that's a Greek Orthodox priest from St. Catherine's Monastery in Sinai. It's a really old monastery, 4th century monastery. Okay? And he's in to give a lecture on uh, their library. A whole bunch of really ancient books in their library that people have never catalogued, never bothered to look at. Uh, and very recently... Tinder has started doing some work on a text that was in the St. Catherine's Monastery Library. It's, now, it's, it's been in the University Library in Cambridge for 100 years, and nobody's bothered to look at it. And now, some money's come in, they've decided to take a look at it, and my friend said, it's really exciting, he said, it's really exciting. They've got this really old document, okay, covered in Syriac. Okay, boring, fairly boring Syriac. But, un- but they, they've done some scans and whatnot, and they've seen that underneath the Syriac, which is fairly old writing, there's an Aramaic document which includes very, very early Aramaic Gospels. Okay, this, this, this document could be like first century. It's really, really old. They don't know quite how old because it takes a quite, a, quite a lot of work to actually... Just, all of a sudden, there's this new document that gives us an Aramaic book that might well be somewhere up here. You know, why is it that over time we get closer to the, the original Bible? It's because from time to time, books like that come up where you go, that must be first century early second century really fascinating um so every year that passes and more of these documents are unearthed uh, we get closer and closer to uh, both in time and therefore in accuracy to the original documents now while i put this up on the screen you're all staring at it because it's very interesting i think um so uh, consider uh, first of all the number of documents so i've just done this with four four little bits of paper scraps of paper and said they all say book and therefore, we can be sure that the original text, actually in English, in my head, was book. Okay. Consider the number of New Testament texts relative to uh, other ancient texts. Okay. Uh, we're somewhere around 6,000 Greek manuscripts, fragments, whole books, uh, whole New Testaments, uh, 
and somewhere like 24,000 in all languages. That, that number will creep over 24,000 if they keep looking at these texts from, uh, from old monasteries. Far and away, more, more New Testament texts than there are of any other document in the ancient world. Uh, Homer's Iliad uh, is pretty impressive, 643, that's uh, more than, by, by far than any other document. The New Testament has far and away the most, and therefore you can do the most uh, of this sort of work to, to be absolutely sure on what the originating documents were. But also notice, uh, chronologically, uh, we're far closer to the time the documents were written. So if you think about how the, the, the passage of time as uh, more and more translate, more and more copies, okay, the chances are the further, the further away the document is from the original, the more copies have gone through in between and the more chance there are for errors to creep in. So you think, um, if you're looking at something like Tacitus Annals, you've got a thousand years that have passed from the original document to the one you've got in your hands. That might mean hundreds of translations, of copies. Okay. New Testament, fragments from the very early second century, whole New Testaments within 225 years. Okay. Really, really short timescales compared to uh, the rest of history. So consider, for example, uh, Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Now, if you grew up in an English school, you'll have been taught about uh, the Roman invasion of Britain based entirely on Caesar's Gallic Wars, written by the guy who won the war. Okay, so propaganda, but it's the only document we have to, uh, to tell us about that. And we have ten copies. Uh, the earliest copy is a thousand years after he wrote it. And yet we treat it as absolute gospel. It is absolutely our history of the Roman invasion of Britain. Uh, nobody doubts it. And yet we, we seem to be quite happy to doubt 24,000 copies of bits of the New Testament that all basically say the same thing. Uh, I read a few historians this week who said, effectively, if you, if you cast aside the New Testament as a historical book, you have to cast aside everything for antiquity. You basically have to say, we know nothing about the ancient world at all. Because the New Testament is far and away the most well-attested document. We, are, we have far more confidence uh, in, the, uh, in the New Testament than we have in any other document from the ancient world by far. Now, the, New, the Old Testament is more complicated than that. I won't go into uh, horrendous detail about that. Safe to say, Jesus and the New Testament writers treat the Greek and Hebrew Bibles that they had in their hands uh, as being God's word. And so uh, if we get clear on the New Testament... The, New, the Old Testament self-verifies at that point because Jesus seems to think that it's God speaking. Okay. Of course, that raises a whole bunch of other questions for us, doesn't it? Uh, can we trust the Bible writers? What did they think they were doing? Uh, 2 Peter 3. Uh, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you in his wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, notice that phrase, speaking in the, of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. No kidding, Peter. At which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. Peter refers here to Paul's writings as scripture. In fact, he refers to all his letters as scripture. What did the, what did the apostles think they were doing when they wrote stuff down? Even when they were writing letters to uh, the churches, they were writing scripture. Notice Luke, uh, the historian who wrote uh, Luke and Acts, massive chunk of the New Testament. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from first eyewitnesses 
and servants of the word, eyewitnesses noticed. Therefore, since I have myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Notice, uh, carefully gathers eyewitness accounts so he can present a clear and faithful account of what happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus so that his friend Theophilus could have certainty. So Luke thought he was writing a certain sure eyewitness account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. The New Testament writers thought they had written truth, sufficiently so that when they were put on trial, and many of them were executed for the things they taught, they refused to recant. And so Peter was crucified upside down, so we're told. Paul beheaded, and uh, most of the apostles were killed in one way or another. Having lived their lives as, as poor uh, itinerant preachers, because the thing they were, they were passing around was the truth, as far as they were concerned. So, so these men certainly thought they'd written uh, God's words, and certainly thought they were writing the truth. And the question is, did they? Did they have the ability to write the truth for us? See, if I asked you what you've eaten today, and write everything down that you've eaten today, I won't do. My guess is, you would eat, you would, even on that, you would think, I'm not entirely sure I'm able to do that. I can't remember how many bits of fruit I've had. Have you had your five a day? I don't know. I have, but, you know. <laughs> um, have you had your five, five today? Uh, what did you have for breakfast and lunch and dinner and snacks and everything else? In what proportions? We, we, we go, well, I'm not entirely sure. I, how can I be clear on those things? So did these writers, writing 20 years or 30 years after Jesus' death, were they able to do what they claimed to do? <clears throat> How much less reliable might the New Testament authors be than me with my list of food today? Well, the one thing about that, uh, the brilliant thing about the Bible is it is a historical document, by which I mean not simply it comes from history, but, but it, it includes history. And it was written within a history, the church's history, which means that you can examine that history and say, does it stack up? Does the New Testament, does the, the Bible stack up? Uh, was it, uh, for example, eyewitness testimony? Was it really eyewitness testimony? Uh, well, certainly, uh, the New Testament writers appealed to eyewitnesses. We've seen Luke, in the, in the beginning of his Gospel, says he's, he's talked to loads of eyewitnesses. At various points in the, in the Gospels, and in Paul's letters, for example, they will say to people, go and talk. Go and talk to the eyewitnesses. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, go and talk to the 500 people who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Most of them are still alive. Go and talk to them. And it's true that if these documents are early, if they are from within a lifetime of Jesus' death and resurrection, it would have been very easy for someone to stand up and say, that's nonsense. That book is a lie. That never happened. It's one of the things I think that distinguishes uh, the Bible from any other religious text. You think about the Quran, for example. Uh, Muhammad in a cave receives a a direct uh, dictation from God and he writes it down and suddenly he appears from a cave in a very ahistorical way, and here's some things that God has said. The Bible says Jesus walked around Palestine for three years, preaching to crowds of thousands, uh, feeding the 5,000 with, with two loaves and five, five loaves and two fish. Well, there are 5,000 eyewitnesses to that. You can't write that in your book and expect people not to stand up and say, oh, I was there, he never did anything of the salt. And yet that never happened. Even the people who were anti-Jesus, you think of the the Roman historians who were writing saying, um, Jesus rose from the dead. They're certainly not refuting it, 
the Jews never were able to say Jesus' miracles didn't happen. They gave a different spin on them, but they never said they didn't happen. Remember, Christianity was a persecuted minority religion. It wasn't uh, the state religion for 300 years. It would have been in the state's interest, in the, in the interest of the religious leaders and everybody else, just to squash Christianity. Very hard to do that because these documents are eyewitness testimony. And if they are early eyewitness accounts, then they must tell the truth because people would have refuted them if they didn't. Uh, so the question is, are they early? Because, of course, if they were written in, say, the second century, they were never eyewitness testimony, and all the eyewitnesses were long dead. And so that's the, the claim that's often made, that Christianity is based on a book that was never written anywhere near, geographically or chronologically, the things that it claims to report on. And what do we make of that? Because uh, that's the last leg of this. There's some lovely stuff, I think, to back this up. I'll give you a couple of things. There's loads more that can be said on this. And again, the guys at Tinder House have been brilliant at uh, contemporary research on this. Uh, some of you remember uh, the Garden of uh, Gethsemane, uh, when the soldiers come to re- arrest Jesus. Uh, can you remember um, one of the disciples attacks one of the, uh, one of the servants of the high priest? Uh, who can tell me what happened? Okay, cuts off his ear. Name of the, the apostle? Peter. Peter. Anyone remember the name, name of the servant? Malchus. Okay. Um, now, here's the thing. Which gospel does that come up in? Mark. Okay, which gospel names the apostle? Don't know. Sounds like Luke. Luke. John. Now, here's the funny thing. So, so, so it's mentioned in three of the gospels, but it's the last gospel by far chronologically that mentions the name. Now, normally, the further you are away historically from the events, the more fuzzy people's memories get. Uh, it's been suggested, why do you think it is that John is able to name Peter, uh, but none of the other Gospels do? Because he was there. Oh, he was there, but so was, uh, so was Matthew. He's got a different recall of the situation. Maybe, yeah. What, what historically happens in... Sorry, this is, this is being really mean. Um, the difference between the first three Gospels and John is that Peter has died in between. Peter's been martyred before John writes. Okay, so if, if, if Matthew, Mark or Luke had named Peter in that event, what would the police have done? Whoa. No way. They'd, they'd have arrested him because, because the Gospels were history. So, of course, if you write down, Peter chopped off the sermon of the high priest's ear, that's pretty much martyrdom on a plate for him. Peter's long dead, so that's okay. You can write that stuff down. There's a fun one for you. Um, uh, people sometimes mention um, later Gospels, like Thomas and Mary. You might have heard that Dan Brown was quite big on that in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, there were about 80 different Gospels that were written very, very early. I told you about the Aramaic document that my friend is looking at at the moment in Cambridge. Four Gospels. Always, every early church father mentions four Gospels only, the same four Gospels. But people say, well, but what about Thomas? The Gospel of Thomas was, was a pretty popular thing. If you actually look at those Gospels just for a minute, okay, very few historical details. People, places, weather, travelling from one place to another. Because the Gospel of Thomas was written a long time afterwards, a couple hundred years afterwards, and a long way away. So if you, it would be like me writing a history of... Uh, 19th century life in Dublin, having never been to Dublin, knowing none of the people, knowing none of the details, I'd have to be pretty vague, wouldn't I? If I didn't have a map of the city at the time, 
I'd have to be pretty vague about names and places and dates and journeys from one place to another because I wouldn't have a clue. And that is what the, 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 the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas looks like, how it reads. By contrast, and what is fascinating about the Gospels is that they are full of uh, names and places and details that you can check. Things like the weather conditions in particular places, which we know even today are very similar. Uh, journey times from one place to another, which we can uh, verify. Here's one I love um, that, again, you can, you can jot down if this is the sort of thing that tickles you. Um, uh, somebody has done some research on uh, the names of people in the first century in Palestine. Uh, they've gone through the tombs and they have written down all the names and they've got charts of the most popular names, the most common names of the day. And they've gone through the, the whole of the New Testament and said, okay, what are, the, what are the names of people in, who live in Palestine, in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, in that period? And how do they map onto the two? And do you know what's funny? They map very, very close together. So, for example, when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, why does he pick the name Lazarus? It's not a real person, it's just a name. Why does he pick Lazarus? Most popular man's name at the time. Which is why you get several Lazaruses in the New Testament. It's why you get several Simons, and why Simon is called Simon Peter, because you distinguish names. So Simon of Cyrene, Simon Peter, you know, you get multiple people of, of the same name. I mean, how many Marys are there in the New Testament? It's quite hard to keep up with them sometimes, because Mary's a really common name in the New, in the New Testament era. These are the things that you can do to say, actually, the only way that the Gospels could get that right, the only way they could get it right, is if the people who were writing them were writing about real people who lived in those real places at that real time. The Gospels are verifiably, scientifically verifiably, eyewitness testimony. Push back on that? Anyone? Uh, you talked about the um, apostles dying. Yep. How do we know those accounts are verifiable? So those things are not necessarily verifiable. Um, we, uh, we can be very sure of the things that uh, Luke says in, in the Acts of the Apostles. We, I mean, we can, we can verify a number of things. We know about uh, state persecution of Christians. We, you know, those things are, are in the annals of, of the Roman Empire and so on. Um, how Peter died, very early documents in the, in the Church Fathers talking about how Peter died, how Paul died, and how various of the Apostles died. I mean, there's no particular reason to, to disbelieve them. It's a little bit like this. It's, it's a little harder to verify because there aren't as many documents. But you know, at some point, you've got, to, you've got to stop saying the history isn't real. You've got to look at the church, and it's growing like wildfire. People are dying all over the place. We know that people are being martyred all over the place uh, for the Christian faith. The Romans are kind of bragging about it. You know? um, so I don't, I don't think it's unbelievable that those things are happening. And certainly, um, there's lots in the New Testament that we can be pretty sure. And I'll come to some of those things in a minute. I love this. Um, this quote from C.S. Lewis, uh, how are we doing for time? Uh, I need to be done in, in shortly, don't I? We're not very far from the end. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, is, was a uh, professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. He says, I've read loads and loads of myth, legends, all of the stuff that people claim the, the Bible is. He said, and it's not. It's manifestly not. And actually he goes on to say, frankly, if it was, then the New Testament writers invented a style of literature that wasn't then going to be written by anybody else for 1,700 years later. We're so used to, uh, to, to science fiction and fantasy and all that sort of stuff. It's very common in our day. It wasn't really invented till the 17th century. So to say that the Bible isn't historical fact, 
I think flies in the face of both the style of literature and the history of literature and all the evidence as well. Maybe a couple of uh, archaeological things. Uh, can we trust the... Have I, have I deleted the... Um... Yes, here we are. Uh, archaeologically, can we trust uh, the New Testament? Uh, on Luke, this is uh, Sir William Ramsey. He was a, a guy who went out to prove that the New Testament was uh, unreliable. And he came to this conclusion. This author, that is Luke, should be placed along with the very greatest historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. And everybody who's written since, who's done any work on the archaeological evidence that backs up Luke. So Luke, Luke is the guy who writes the Acts of the Apostles. So he's writing about a 30-year history of the, of the church. And so he's the most easy to, to look at and verify. But Luke's claim from Luke 1.1 1, 1 is, um, is, is true. He wrote a very trustworthy act. Uh, for Acts, the confirmation is overwhelming. Any attempt to reject its basic history must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. Again, uh, another contemporary historian it is the fact that the, the New Testament was written to be eyewitness testimony and was successfully done so. It was uh, successfully so. And this is uh, another historian. On the Old Testament, uh, it's as well. Now, however, it is no longer possible to reject the substantial historicity of the Bible, at least as far back as the time of Abraham, because of the remarkable discoveries of archaeology. I brought this book with me. I don't. In, uh, if, you, if you feel particularly inclined... On the Reliability of the Old Testament by Ken Kitchen. Uh, that is uh, just full of archaeological evidence, uh, scripts from other places that back up various details in the, in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, people have long said, these things are so far away, they can't possibly have happened. And I think what Ken Kitchen has proved is, well, actually, there's a, you know, wherever there is archaeological evidence in one, one direction or another, the Bible is consistently demonstrated on the things that we can prove. And at some point, you've got to stop thinking that the things we can't prove one way or the other are untrue. Uh, but even if, in general, the, new, the authors are being truthful, how can we sure that, that it's true in every respect? Because, of course, our Christian faith depends on the historicity of the Bible uh, in its specific details. Let me give you uh, two verses that I think are helpful for this. Uh, theologically, the Bible comes from God. How can we be sure that the Bible is, is trustworthy in every detail when we can't prove every detail? Because the Bible claims for itself that prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That is, what you have in the Bible is from God, says, uh, says Peter again. All scripture is God-breathed, that is, breathed out by God, spirited out by God, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, says the Apostle Paul. So he's writing scripture saying, this is coming from God, it's not from me. And actually Paul does distinguish in one or two places where he's saying, this is, this is my thinking, not what God has told me. Now you can ask questions later about how that works, how does inspiration work. It doesn't override the idioms, the language, the, the personal history of the people who are writing. These are still their books, uh, but they come from God. And if you want to read a bit more on how that works, uh, my book, God Speaks, I'll give a little plug there, um, is a great entry point into this discussion. Uh, so it is, uh, it is a historical fact that these things happened. Uh, so far as you can be sure about anything, you can be sure that the Bible is telling the truth. And its own, its own argument is that this is because it is from God. Now, of course, you might be somebody whose worldview assumes that God does not exist. 
But if we're prepared to suspend that disbelief for just a moment, uh, after all, all, all uh, base assumptions must be suspected, what have we seen? We've, uh, we have the Bible that was written. I think that is uh, demonstrably the case. It was written very close to the time of the events by eyewitnesses, for eyewitnesses, and people like the eyewitnesses, uh, people who were willing to die for the truthfulness of what they wrote. The archaeological evidence backs this up and supports the idea that the text is historically accurate. But that does leave us with one important question, particularly about this sort of material here. Isn't it a circular argument to say that we believe the Bible because the Bible tells us to? Isn't that the fatal flaw in the whole exercise? Let me say two things as we, as we draw these things towards a close. First, if the Bible really is the word of God, what authority would you appeal to that is higher than the Bible? If the Bible is God speaking, what is the, uh, the, the verification you would give it? And we've seen lots of things that I think help to back up the historical reliability of the documents. But in the end, if God is speaking, then he has to be able to tell you what's reliable and what's not. Uh, in fact, to appeal to any sort of external authority over the Bible is actually to deny that we believe the Bible at all. Because we're putting somebody else above God at that point. But secondly, and this one I think is, is important and often missed, everybody does it. Everybody has an ultimate authority that has to validate itself. Uh, the first premise of our worldview is um, somebody has said this is true. Take uh, René Descartes, for example. Who told Descartes that all truth was knowable by starting with the I? Well, nobody. And it, and it isn't demonstrably the case from his own worldview. It's just a starting premise that is untested and is circular. It is a premise that, it, that itself has no validation. It is the first point of his worldview. Or take the mind of Richard Dawkins, for example. Uh, is it necessarily the case that all truth can be known through the scientific method? I don't think it's demonstrably the case at, at all. Certainly metaphysical, things about God and the spiritual realm cannot be known from the, the scientific method. And yet Richard Dawkins has assumed that the scientific method can know all things. And therefore that the universe is only limited to the material realm. But he begins with a premise that is untested. It's unprovable from his own method... The scientific method doesn't say all knowledge can be known from science. All scientific knowledge can be known from science. There's a whole bunch of uh, knowledge that cannot be known from science. You see. Or take, take the postmodern. We've already seen, haven't we? That the postmodern person believes in the absolute statement that, that all absolute statements are untrustworthy. It's a self-refuting uh, worldview. The premise destroys itself. Everybody's doing it. Everybody has an authority that is uh, un, uh, untestable, uncontestable. And the question, therefore, is not, do you have one? But do you have the right one? Is the Bible the right one? And in the end, um, let me say, the only way you can know is by reading it. The only way you can know is by actually picking it up. Let me, let me suggest three questions that I think are really helpful in discerning uh, whether a worldview stacks up. 
does it make sense? Is it coherent? Does it hold together? Does it present a worldview that makes sense of the things that we see? I've done a little bit of work this evening, only the beginnings of work on uh, is it intellectually credible to even read the Bible? But once you're reading the Bible, does it stack up? Does it, uh, does it have big plot holes that you could drive a bus through? Or does it actually make a lot of sense intellectually? Does it satisfy our uh, desire for intellectual coherence? But I think if we stop there, as we often do, we really miss something very important. See, a worldview can be very intellectually satisfying. I think I've met lots of people who have said, I mean, believe me, I met somebody who said to me, um, Richard Dawkins says that the atheist worldview works, so therefore that's, that's where I stand. Madness. The guy's a loon, frankly. But to, to say, because Richard Dawkins thinks it, I'm going to think it, that, that's not evidence-based. But the reason you can do that in our, in our generation is because the atheistic worldview, the secular atheist materialistic worldview, is the intellectually credible worldview. It's the one that, in the common parlance, is believed to be coherent, so nobody's looking at it carefully. Nobody's examining it. But actually, if you ask the question, does it satisfy emotionally? Does it get to the core of who I am? Does it answer the questions that come to me? To, to paraphrase Blaise Pascal, does it, when I sit alone in the dark for a few minutes and the questions come, who are you? Where do you come from? Where are you going? What's it all about? What's the purpose of life? When those questions come, does it have an answer to those things? I want to say at that level, uh, the, the secular atheist worldview of Richard Dawkins is horrible. You have no purpose. Life is meaningless. Everything is chance. And you're going to die. And everything rots. And you'll be long forgotten. Now that might be true, but you've got to prove the truthfulness of that. But actually, as C.S. Lewis would argue, we have these questions within ourselves and they, they don't find their answer till you find God. It's only in Christ that those deep longings for meaning and purpose find their fulfilment. And so we have to ask the question of our friends. Does your worldview actually satisfy you? Does it give you meaning that makes sense of the longings of your heart? And then thirdly, and I think this is really important as well, does it work? Emmanuel Kant was uh, very public about the fact that he said, my worldview is for the home, because if you try to bring it into the, into the world out there, uh, chaos. Well, let me say, if your worldview only works in your house and doesn't work in building a society, your worldview is radically um, shortchanging people. It doesn't have the explanatory power for the world that we live in. And so the question is, uh, does it work? And I want to say to, to us uh, and to our non-Christian friends, Come and look at the church. That's a frightening thing to say, isn't it? If you're part of our church, then to say to people, come and see my church to see how good the gospel is, feels like a pretty bonkers thing to say because we're broken people and we're prone to stuffing up. And yet it is the case that the gospel changes us, makes us different people. And so we put uh, Christ on display in our community life together. If, you've, uh, uh, if you're uh, looking into Christian things and you've seen something of that, well, the reason is because the Bible is true and the gospel works. And the Bible is a true account of the historical events it narrates, focused on Jesus. And if the Bible is uh, true in its claim to be truth, let me say it's not optional whether you read it or not. If the Bible is true uh, and it is a historically uh, verifiable account of the life and death of the most important man in history, 
And it's not optional whether you read it or not. It is necessary. It's a necessary consequence of the scientific historical evidence for the Bible's reliability. You have to read it. And so do our friends. Is the Bible coherent? Yes. Written all those years ago by 40 plus different authors over 2,000 years. It is totally coherent. It uh, sees the end from the beginning. That one I've already done. Um, it sees the end from the beginning. Uh, prophecy. I hope Jay mentioned this on that table. It's a great place to go. Uh, explain to me how it is that people were able to write uh, 3,000, 4,000 years ago things about Jesus that didn't happen for 1,000, 2,000 years. It would be like uh, Geoffrey Chaucer predicting the MacBook and all the things that had to happen to, for the MacBook to exist. Uh, insane to think that that could happen hundreds of years. And it did. And the Bible is the only document that has uh, prophecy time after time after time, hundreds of them, all coming true uh, a long way after the, the books were written. Uh, the Bible is uh, reliable. It is God speaking. And that is a historical fact and we need to read it. As I end, um, why not turn back to your friends and take one of these questions, turn to, to the person next to you and say, how now would you answer one of those questions if your friend posed it, given what we've seen this evening? I've said lots, probably too much, forgive me. We are right on the edge of the hour that we said we'd be. Take two minutes and say, actually, how do I put this into practice? What would I say to a friend who asked me, you know, the Bible doesn't claim to be God's word, or, or the Bible is full of contradictions, or whatever. I've given you enough to answer each of those tonight. <laughs> Sorry? No? I've given you the answers already. <laughs> we can talk on the school run, though, it's all right.